0: This is IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. I'm your host, Lee Llewellyn. This podcast represents the launch of a new series of podcasts that will feature staff and programs from the Indiana Economic Development Corporation, IEDC. Our intent is to provide information directly to Indiana's economic development professionals and build a better sense of collaboration and teamwork to all levels of our economic development efforts. Today I'm joined by Brock Herr, IEDC Senior Vice President for Business Development, Jessica Tower, Vice President of Attractions, and Matt Saltonovitz, Vice President of Domestic Business Expansion let me start by asking each of you to explain or define your position and function within IEDC so Brock let's start with you
1: sure thanks Lee and uh, thanks for having us on the podcast Um, really I think the best way to describe my role is um, oversee our business development strategy and operations uh, and also deal making functions so um, from site selection lead generation and marketing um, down to incentives Um, oversee the team and then, in many cases, act as our uh, lead negotiator.
0: Okay, and Jessica Tower, you're the Vice President of Attractions. What does that mean and what do you do?
2: Well, Lee, that is a great question. The Vice President of Attractions is part of the business development team focusing on domestic and international attraction projects not only with consultants but also with companies so what do i do what does that actually mean i assist in guiding our attractions team members project managers along with my colleague matt with new projects and companies interested in moving to the hoosier state we work closely with our projects and companies interested that are moving here as well as our LIDOS, ritos and utility partners
0: okay Thanks. Uh, and finally, Matt Soltanovitz, uh, what does the Vice President of Domestic Business and Expansion do within IEDC?
3: First, let me echo what everyone said. Thank you, Lee, for having us. Um, and yeah, uh, regarding my role as Vice President of Domestic Business Expansion, I think the the title can be a little misleading. It's it's not an expansion in the, the sense of br e business retention and expansion, that most people know it, but more of a a hybrid role, um, focusing mainly on lead generation uh, within the U.S. for Indiana's or IEDC's efforts across the nation, and then also business attraction, working uh, along with Jessica Tower and her team and basically everything she just said, uh, I do a little bit of that too, and and helping her uh, in those efforts and, and working some of the high, higher profile projects that the, the state might see look, looking across the state for these mega projects we've been seeing over the past year or two, and then uh, also interfacing with our marketing and sales enablement team to make the lead generation process um, more effective.
0: Okay, and I think it helps because part of what we're trying to do through this process through these podcasts is help everybody to better understand IEDC. And so this will serve as a little bit of an introduction to some of the staff and help us all get to know one another a little bit better. So, let's dig in now and talk about lead generation and marketing through IEDC, and Brock, I'm going to start with you. Under uh, Commerce Secretary Brad Chambers, IEDC has adopted a 5E strategy. So talk about the 5Es and how they are driving the approach to attraction projects and lead generation.
1: Yeah, thanks, Lee. Um, So 5E uh, is the Secretary's strategy and vision, I would say fully now embraced as the idc strategy and vision it is a play on 5g uh, meant to mean that we move and operate at the speed of business and so what the five e's are external engagement is one and so um, think of this truly as uh, telling indiana's story and value proposition but even going a step further in um, not just telling it but um, providing actionable ways that companies businesses people can take advantage of that the built environment or environment is another one Um, And we say built environment, because we don't necessarily mean the trees and the grass and the rivers. Um, Obviously, those are very important, and we want to protect and maintain those. But think of quality of place, quality of life, when you think built environment. So really focusing on workers and communities first, because we hear that companies, you know, ultimately um, want to to locate and expand and grow in communities that have that momentum. Entrepreneurship is another one of the E's. Um, This is a a huge focus for us. You know, the, the stats are abundant about, how many jobs are supported by a quote-unquote um, startup or entrepreneurial business. And Secretary himself started as an entrepreneur. And so um, fostering and cultivating you know, that entrepreneurship aspect, a lot of times that's a younger demographic, also goes to workforce as well. And then economy of the future as well. This is you know, really geared towards playing off of our base of what we've got here existing from a good foundational uh, standpoint of business. We're really looking to the future you know so not what's on the horizon in five to ten years but where are industries and economies heading in decades um, whether it's ev semiconductors life sciences and trying to be thoughtful about all of our strategies as it relates to you know a long-term growth proposition and not just a short-term one Um, And then lastly, the energy transition would be the 50. Um, As we all know, it's uh, a pretty unprecedented um, energy transition time right now. And so being very thoughtful about how um, we can stay up with the market, be a leader in that transition, but not be too fast and outpace ourselves with growth. And so ultimately your question is how does the 5E strategy inform lead generation and attraction efforts? In a number of ways, I would say. Um, You know, who and, and why we target both for cultivating in state, but really attraction and lead gen. Um, We don't have the resources and the breadth nor desire of a huge state like Texas, let's say, to just throw a wide net and get anyone come all who wants to come. Instead, we're willing to be targeted and thoughtful and back that with analysis. And so that's kind of really an economy of the future play there. Um, You then look at things like the Ready program. This is really around worker housing, workforce uh, development, that's built environment right? And so um, that truly is part of our lead gen marketing strategy because one of the things we're hearing is where are my people going to live? What is the state doing to build additional worker housing? Well, unattached to your project, these are initiatives that the state's doing and it fits within this broader strategy of cultivating live, work, play. As I mentioned, external engagement, we're doing marketing, but we're doing it in a different way than we've done before. Um, Not only going through a rebrand currently, which uh, maybe is a little news that can break, if you will, that we will have a refreshed brand in a sense. But it's not just a brand image either. It's what does that mean for a company that may be locating here and particularly around a workforce thing? So we're intentional about economies of the future, right? Well, part of our marketing strategy is to specifically market to that workforce, those supply chain companies of why Indiana is a value proposition for that ecosystem which ultimately benefits a company. So um, a lot of different ways, I guess, that the 5E is informing our strategy.
0: What is it about the you, what you're doing with lead generation that you think the, the locals don't understand that they that you would like them to understand? Uh, because I think sometimes there's a little bit of a disconnect about what you're doing and, and how people perceive it in the field.
1: Yeah, um, so sometimes I think it's perceived as this, amorphous box that nobody knows what's going on inside and i'll say that's not the case it's actually very practical and, and feasible for a local or rito to have a crystallized lead gen or marketing strategy um, because what it comes down to is identifying kind of what you're good at what you're about and and what you want to attract or cultivate and that disconnect of not saying it, it's truly that simple sometimes and then you know Putting it in marketing material, that's a whole separate thing. But crystallizing what a lead gen strategy or desire is, is looked at as this very difficult, hard to do, not sure what it is thing. And it's, it's
0: really not. Okay. So anything else about sort of strategy that we haven't talked about just in strategy particularly for lead generation?
1: Um, what I would just say is you know, we are taking a pretty comprehensive approach, and I know Matt will get into this a bit. You know, Within this 5E strategy and layered with data and analytics from both internal and external sources, we've really taken approach of we can bring on domestic office contractors like we've done on international offices, but we can also engage with direct lead generation partners that we can inform that with our strategy. So not just go do it for us of this is who we're looking for, this is the profile go out and company hunt, in a sense. Um, we work with a number of um, third-party stakeholders. I'll use CICP entities as a great example. They're effectively an extension of our lead gen activities because they've got context and nuance within industries and are going to events. And then also truly just down to um, you know, kind of, I don't want to say cold call, but for lack of a better word, um, that's where, again, we will intentionally reach out with any level of kind of marketing material up to almost a preemptive RFP response to companies or industries that we're trying to target. So we do take a pretty comprehensive approach from a strategy standpoint operationally that are all informed ultimately by that data and insights that goes along to the 5E.
3: One thing I'd like to add to that, Brock, is that we're taking a very deliberate approach, especially this year, of getting our business development staff out, for lack of a better word, out on the streets at you know the Site Selectors Guild conferences, at IAMC, Area Development, all those types of events. So I think you'll see more business development staff uh, accompanying uh, those events with Lidos and Ridos and partners.
0: Well, so, but I think there's always a question about, um, you know, how do you know what industries we should be targeting and how is that calibrated on a geographic level because not all areas of the state are are the same. So how do you calibrate geography and industry targets? Well,
3: I think with the the targeting, we'll go back uh, to the 5E strategy. So I I really do hope you like hearing the words 5E because I think we're going to say those uh, over and over because they really do just direct the approaches we're taking. And I think you could apply them to all portions of the state whether it's in the you know more rural areas that that maybe have more agribusiness you could look at the agrobioscience um sectors or you know something that you know where i'm from so i i'm, I'm you know no secret i'm from northwest indiana there's a lot more uh, at least towards the lake a lot more industrial opportunities there so we could look at maybe the more advanced technology for manufacturing there instead of the you know traditional smokestacks that you might be thinking of when you think of manufacturing
1: and Lee I might add too. this is where we see some really you know thoughtful communities that will come alongside of to kind of cultivate their lead gen strategy and um, you know just use Fisher's as an example they've created this little life science district up there and we've been intentional over the last couple years in terms of marketing and outreach and so that is kind of more of a cluster ecosystem lead-gen strategy that they've intentionally embarked on. They already had that foundation there and they knew they wanted to be life science with Roche. But to get to your, your question is, how do we determine geography and industry overlap? What we've seen is these economies of the future in this 5e, some of them we know, EVs, microchips, life sciences, what we've now heard directly, and also layered with information from workforce experts, is we've got so much of the foundational workforce here that applies to all of those economies of the future, and it truly does stretch across every corner and nook of the state. And so, from a state level, I think that's where we see a legion opportunity. Is the economies of the future, those that are already here or that are growing, we've got the workforce and skill set that easily transition those skills. And then down to that more refined level, that's where then we can create a little bit more industry specific um, ecosystem benefit. Think of Warsaw, medical device capital of the world, Northwest Indiana, steel and all things related steel, um, any number of pockets of auto across the state. So a lot of it is driven by what's here and what we know those existing industries are heading towards and trending and where that lead gen activity could lead. And then some of it too is seeing where the overlap really is of what those economies of the future are and seeing if we at a state level can tease out a value proposition, which we have, of why we're positioned to make this economy the future
3: transition or energy transition or whatever it may be. And this is where I would encourage uh, you know the, the Lidos and the Ridos utilities, reach out to us if there's an intentional strategy on lead generation that you yourself are, are enacting. We're happy to to walk alongside that path with you.
2: And I would also add, I've had the good fortune of working with several Lidos and Ritos all across the state. They already have this template. We're just taking them as we talk about five E's into the economy of the future. So Brock has already explained, we have that base economy. And I would say a good share of our Lidos and Ritos have this in their strategic plan. So how do we amplify their existing strategic plan into an economy of the future?
0: So, how do you know that? So, there are individual communities that have their targets, understanding comprehensively sort of the big picture in the state, how are you, how do you document that in the process? Some of it may be intuitive because of what we have done for a long time, but uh you mentioned cicp one of the first things i did when i was at cicp was we launched an industry cluster study which was one of the first ones and even the people in the industries in indiana looked at it and said "Well, no we can't be a life science center i mean you know we're just not that big and that good so even the people in the industry sometimes don't recognize that so how do you identify and document all of that and, and then implement once you understand that? How is that happening?
1: Yeah, maybe I can take that initially. So it's definitely informed by a lot of research and analytics, and it's not just, oh, what's the research and analytics tell us? It's also prognostication. We'll look at market forecasts, you know, global and countrywide macro and even micro trends to help inform, like, do we have the ability to be a life science mecca, if you will, because if not, then why would we spend effort and energy there? And so what I would say is, you know, it's informed by some level of analysis, but also prognostication of where we're going. And, and then frankly, it's informed by anecdote, you know, direct feedback that we hear from our auto OEM manufacturers of precisely what their supply chains experiencing and where their industry is headed. I mean, that's great feedback that we should never, you know, look in the mouth when we're hearing the person who rolls into these big macro trends that you see at the national level telling us this is exactly what we're experiencing. So that's part of, I guess, the informative process. And then you mentioned it, the third party experts, like we bring them in to say, like, is this technology real? Is this company or these players, if you will? known entities in the industry, do they have a track record of success? And then this is where I'll kick it to Matt even, is once we get a lead, we then have a lead score as well, a number of factors that once you ask a little bit more nuanced, deeper questions can help tell you, like, is this just a conversation? Are they looking to develop their own business development list or what? It, whatever it may be. So do you want to talk about that a little Matt? Yeah,
3: and and not to jump ahead cuz I think I'm going to we're going to talk about this a little further as well with, you know, we have our domestic business development offices across the country where we receive leads from as well as a couple of outside vendors and then some of our, you know, staff as well as uh, our international offices will bring us leads when they come in. You know, of course, we we vet them. And to make sure, is, is this the right type of company we want to see in Indiana? We go through similar to our, our deal scoring model with our project um, scoring as, as we look at and in investing into a company. Is this lead worth us taking You know the appropriate amount of time? And wh- where does it go? Where is this lead or as we're calling them internally opportunities? Where is this opportunity rank within uh, the scale? Is this something that is going to develop very quickly, or is this something that's going to be six months to a year out so we know how to prioritize it? How does it fit within our 5e strategy, another way for us to prioritize it?
1: And so maybe to simply put, Lee, is we have, I guess, leads that can turn into opportunities that turn into projects. That's the process, and we do that tracking internally in our um, Customer Relationship Management System, CRM, but along each of those steps there's kind of some validation or due diligence that's being done, you know, questions as you get deeper into conversations, beyond just a, hey, I'm interested to learn more. That's a leap into, hey, specifically, this is our growth strategy. This is what we're looking at in the next couple years. That's an opportunity. Down to, okay, now we've got a board approved investment plan in XYZ that converts to a project. So there are those levels of kind of due diligence and vetting that happen as we move it through our process.
0: But I think you've also referenced the fact that not everything fits. And I think that's something that's hard sometimes for you know, specifically some elect- local elected officials and others to, to understand that, you know, we have, well, this looks like a great opportunity. Why wouldn't we be just be chasing it and throwing money after it? But why don't some things fit?
1: number of reasons i mean a lot of the times it's driven by factors that the client feels like the site's not ready or that a community may not have the sufficient workforce or the region Um, down to even things like um, smaller municipalities sometimes um, the public services they have down to water and fire for a larger operation just isn't the level of comfort that the company would need and so some of that a local can control some of them that can't but that's where i think if what we've done is take a clear look in the mirror of what we are and what we aren't, and what we want to be, and how we would get there. And I think if you have that crystallization, you can then see projects as they come through, and then start to have some type of vetting or prioritization of this is the type of industry that aligns with what we want, what we have, where we want to head, versus just any and all project that comes in. I think this goes back to Matt's point having some type of crystallized lead gen strategy or comprehensive plan helps inform ultimately to what level you pursue projects or ask certain level of questions or how aggressively you even incentivize.
3: Yeah, and even some sometimes which I think you may be referencing Lee, there's some projects that, that may not be a great fit for the company or for the community and the community may not realize it. Oftentimes, and and I've definitely found this out in my in this new role for me, and we've all seen these what I'll I'll call and speculative projects, you know, projects that just don't pass the gut check. Uh, so you have to do an extra level of due diligence to, you know, maybe ask some tough questions. You know, can you provide me a very uh, extrapolated business plan? Can you prov- provide me uh, some proof of financing? And you know, sometimes you just it, it doesn't pass pass any of those tests and and that's when you know that's not a good fit at all so maybe that that's i don't know does that answer
0: yeah yeah i think uh, again i think um i mean i often talk about there 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 was an old saying a long time ago in around economic development shoot anything that flies claim anything that falls and <laughs> and you know that that sort of applies to i think the attitude that some people have about well but but this you know but this company wanted to come here but i think i think we should all take comfort in the fact that we're being much more discriminatory in terms of conducting an analysis making sure that it's a viable opportunity and that it's going to be a company that can flourish within the Indiana environment and the Indiana economy and has the necessary supports. And so I think that's the message we take out of that is that, yes, but not everything really is a good opportunity and not everything fits. And so that's that's exactly where I was going. So, Matt, you you talked about uh, you, you brought up that term of domestic offices and and the correlate i think is that um, for many of us we've known about the international offices that were positioned to tell indiana story but now there are these domestic offices so what are they and kind of what what's their purpose
3: sure um so the domestic offices i mean they're essentially kind of an intentional attempt to recreate the success of the international offices but on you know obviously a domestic level uh, obviously the international offices are going to have some level of diplomacy that isn't necessary on the domestic offices, so, but, but very similar functions of performing that business development and lead generation functions for us. So we, we opened up offices in Chicago as well as the Bay Area. And those made sense uh, as our first two opportunities to open domestic offices, and and the plan is to have some more in the future, very strategically across the country. You know, kind of a, a approach, multi approach for these markets. You know, obviously the lead generation, we're obviously hoping to get some some attention from companies, but then also some brand awareness. It's no secret. Probably to a lot of people that Indiana doesn't have a, a negative correlation or a connotation to it elsewhere within the comp- or country, we just have no, no. There's no correlation or no connotation with with Indiana. There's we're not necessarily at the top of their mind. So we want to change that, and then uh, fostering some some more of the specific market segments out there We're will good we use a good example of the Bay Area is just that's you know the the home of entrepreneurship and innovation in the country and we think there's some opportunities there to to bring some of that over to Indiana some expansion f- from the bay area you know many of these companies may have to be based there but they don't have to expand there and there's there's you know a striking difference between the business climate on the west coast versus what we find in Indiana and you know, taking that back to Chicago, you know, I'm you know, been with IEDC going on seven years now. I started out as director of Northwest Indiana. I, I definitely know there's a striking business climate difference between Illinois and Indiana. We may not still be running those um, Illinois ads anymore, but people still, to this day, talk about that, and and, and they you know, a lot of these smart businesses know that there's a better opportunity here on our side of the border and we want to be deliberate on how we we market or market to those companies
1: and if i can just add lee to the domestic offices are going to be a good vehicle for us um, i'll use cicp partners again the bay area in chicago or the california office they're going to be heading out there for a number of events where they've got contacts where previously we haven't been able to have you know a true representative alongside of them and so for a lot of this domestic travel and conferences and trips that are not specifically site selector we're going to be able to leverage these offices to go to and so by no means am i offering that we can just go anywhere that uh, alito or rito wants but um, we would encourage folks that particularly if they're going on bay area you know, sales gen or lead trips to let us know, um, as there may be some opportunity for us to get uh, Jillian Oaks, is her name, engaged. And I would say same thing with Chicago and these other offices. But that's one where we've already heard folks say, hey, we've got a trip in March. Can we get plugged in with Jillian when we're out there? And our answer has been absolutely yes. Yeah,
3: there's already uh, plans in the works for a pretty big conference. And we're involving ag ag. So excited about that one.
2: And I think that's also an opportunity for our locals that target these specific conferences. And if, for example, in the Bay Area, as we kind of stick there, we do have that rep that's out there that they can attend coupled by our CICP partners and uh, an extension of our business development reps.
1: It's almost a team-based attraction approach, like
0: we talked about with br and it's a good. team
2: sport <laughs> yeah
0: so so now that I've got you talking uh, Jessica let's let's shift the focus here and talk about let's, uh, attraction and request for proposals uh, so I'd like for you to talk a little bit about the process that occurs when a lead comes into IEDC what happens internally when when you get those leads
2: Thank you and great question. Internally, we can receive leads in different manners. We've already talked about our domestic and our international offices, which we receive leads from, but we also re- receive leads from site consultants, brokers, and even our RITOs and Lidos. So we would take in those requests. Um, they come in different varieties, shapes, or forms. But let's use a site consultant, for example, because that's probably our most commonly generation that we receive. Okay. We would get an RFP or an RFI with very pointed specifics on what they're looking for. Or their client is looking for. We work in coordination with our site selection manager, Sarah Salisbury. On those leads um, it's usually an internal conversation to start out with with the site consultant to really kind of needle in on the specifics so we know we're providing the information that those site consultants need we then um, create what's called an active need and that active need or project that will go out via code name will go out via Sarah with the attachments of the particulars to the project so how many acres are they looking for? What's the square footage of the building? What are the electrical needs? Now we may not have all of the information, but we're providing as much as given to us back into the local communities. And we really don't want to decide necessarily the site and the building from those consultants. We want that feedback from the locals on those. So that's why you have that traditional RFI, RFP that goes out. So it could be in a targeted area, or it could go out statewide so it comes in that different form or fashions the active need goes out we ask a response from the locals in a certain time frame um, one of the common questions or requests we give is this deadline real yes the deadline is real <laughs> it is given to us by the consultants but it's fair enough to ask sometimes we can get extensions but yes we don't just make up the deadlines
1: and let me make just a quick point not to throw off the process but to that point specifically deadlines are real but most site consultants do recognize that some of them the timelines are unreasonable and that there's dense information what we always encourage is submit what you have now by the deadline and just candidly say more information is set to come and a lot of the times you can get it in the next couple days and it's no harm no foul
2: yeah, absolutely. And, and I had that kind of traveling down the, in my talking points as well. So thank you, Brock. Internally as well, once we receive the RFP or RFI working with Sarah, there will also be a project manager behind that site. So typically our Lidos, um, our local economic development officials will receive an email from Sarah but know in the background that there's a specific project manager on, in this case, the attractions team working the project. And that person is key and critical as our point of contact, not only with the consultants, but eventually with the locals as the sites get down-selected through the process, but also with our interagency, so working with INDOT um, Now, we'll work via our ombudsman here on staff That is your single point of contact, and that has proven, based on feedback from our site consultants, to be really effective because they know one person to come to for all the questions. Now, how does that help the locals? We work in conjunction with them, too, because at the end of the day, um, a local win is a state win, and that's what we really look at. So as we travel through, we'll send out the RFP or the active need um, to the local communities. They'll submit by the deadline um, and to Brock's point, if they don't have all the answers, that's fine. We can supplement that information down the road to the consultants and we just ask them to make sure that they fill in the blanks specifying, obtaining information. And that's another key component and kind of a tip for rfp is being submitted never leave blanks never never leave blanks that is a critical component that we're not just making that up that's specifically what site consultants have told us over the years so fill it out it's in in its entirety but also feel free to ask questions if we send out an active need and a utility doesn't look right come back to us with questions. We'll go back to the site consultants and try to supplement in that information as best as possible. But to kind of wrap up the process, we get the sites back. We'll do an evaluation, due diligence, make sure the RFP um, or RFI is filled out in its entirety. And then we will package that together to send back to the site consultants.
0: So a couple of, couple mm-hmm. of questions to follow up. So so one, so if you tell people not to to leave a blank, mm-hmm. but if they don't know the answer or they don't have the information readily available, what do they put in there rather than leave it blank?
2: Um if it doesn't apply to that community, you can simply put N/A. If it's for example, let's say a utility particularly water, sometimes that's hard to obtain in the time frame of an RFI deadline simply put in that blank obtaining information and then we will make sure that the consultants are aware that there's follow-up information and get that back to them as soon as we receive that through the locals something to note too in most of our Litos and retos we'll know this is it's all done through zoom prospector That's a tool that the state has invested in. It's proven to be effective for us in several different levels. And if there's anybody new to a local economic development or regional economic development office, contact Sarah. She does one-on-one training with Zoom Prospector all the time. So just want to put that plug in there. She is kind of our keeper to an extent of all of our inventory and how Zoom Prospector functions to an extent. And she's always willing to help the locals. How do you improve on an RFI? She'll go over that with them as well.
0: So then my other question is, where do these project names come from?
2: This is a frequently asked question. So, um, so, is
0: this like the National Weather Service that has like the list of names? How they're going to name hurricanes for the for even, the year? Even better. Or does this come <laughs> from the the, um, the site selectors? Or or do you have a dartboard that you throw?
2: So, on? I will give my version of how they come in, and I know there's others in the room that actually like making code names. I personally do not like making the code name, <laughs> but we need to make sure that they're not quickly identify all of the company if we're under NDAs, which we are constantly with site selectors. Right. Most of them do come from the site consultants. Okay. So we do not create, I would say a vast majority of them. If we do create one, I know I personally sometimes go to my colleagues and say, can you help me with this code name? Or I find something that's not truly identifiable that will tag to the project i
0: just wondered you yeah. know it's it's you know i hear about you know as i'm making the rounds people say oh you know yes well it's project alpha and it's like okay so this is decided. one of
1: my favorite parts of the job Lee. <laughs> so i love naming project names and giving them something crazy and um obscure so to jessica's point anytime it's a consultant-led project they typically always name okay. their own it's a lot of times like the company led projects they won't realize they need to create a code name so they'll ask us to create one and then that's where again it's it, it's actually a kind of fun thing here for us to create a code name that really to jessica's point is some type of red herring but in our funny weird internal way has some direct connection to that project so i'll just use uh, an example project fusion is what we called the Stellantis samsung deal okay and it was a fusion between two cultures and types of companies, a battery maker and an OEM, one from France, one for the Netherlands, one from Korea. So it was a fusion.
0: Okay. All uh, right.
3: I'll add my two cents that the joy and and fun of, of naming a project quickly disappeared for me after about a month on the job. But that might be the in, in the function of being a project manager that saw like, you know, dozens of projects and it, it gets a little tricky sometimes of, you know, trying to think of, oh, let's see, how do I reference a Beatles album or whatever? Uh, <laughs> and, and sometimes it's just random. I'll be walking into the office and it will be like July or August and, you know, look at the, the, the flowers nearby. I'm like, Oh, okay. Project sunflower.
1: And and that's where I would say in seriousness, um, you know, it it is important to be thoughtful of what you're going to call a project if you've been given the opportunity to call it something. We had a situation where it was an FDI, particularly FDI. Words or phrases in English may have other meanings or, frankly, loaded meanings in other cultures or histories. And so there was a French project, Mm -hmm. I can remember, where we had to change the name because somebody smartly said it shouldn't
3: be called that and it was it was a, actually it, the company that, that named the project in a very tongue in cheek way but it's still if it got out or even talking about it internally we not didn't, not a good look
1: yeah so it, it's important to have fun with it but you know be mindful and smart that you're not giving away too much or walking yourself into an
0: issue okay well, i walked us down that cul-de-sac so <laughs> i'll try to bring back. <laughs> sorry fun out. Uh, uh, So, back to, we we talked a little bit, Matt talked a little bit about sort of how we do due diligence, but, you know, that's serious business. When you get a prospect, you have an opportunity. I mean, how do you know and how do you go through that process of determining, uh, is it legitimate? And whether it fits or not, it's not. I mean, part of that may be a gut check, but there has to be some more science to, to the process.
2: So I would say that's multi-prong, because frankly, at the beginning, sometimes we don't even know who the company is. And it could be every bit of three, six months plus before we actually know who the company is. So we continue the communication. Let's say it came via a site consultant on several nuances to continually vet that through the process, especially if something jumps out in the RFP or you know, is this real, are these numbers real? So it's that continued conversation with the site consultant. Once the company is divulged for us, we have several different means of doing background checks, looking at um, how the company functions, We have PitchBook, which we use frequently here internally just to see what is out there regarding the company and going a little bit more in depth in their financials. But that's once we've learned who the company is, and we actually have or do have a formal due diligence form. You know, if it's a new company to the state, but it exists elsewhere, we do our due diligence through our different means that we have um, through technology pitch book for example but we also fill out a form and send to our legal department to do a little bit deeper dig into that to make sure is this a right fit are they say who they are and to matt's point earlier sometimes what's your financials
1: and getting to the financial piece too it goes a little bit more to our side of the ledger but another thing that we do to make sure that we quote, vet or be smart with how we approach this is we do then have a deal score um, where it's looking at quantitative and qualitative factors that align with our 5E. To your point, Lee, to say, you know, even if it's a real project, does it make sense? And if it does make sense, to what extent do we wanna use state resources and at what level for that? So once we kind of clear and vet that this is a real project, this is a legitimate company, they've got financing, there aren't any red flags, there's still that layer of deal scoring, if you will, which is how strongly does this align with the local, the regional, the state initiatives and strategy and and kind of what we want to see? I'll just say that the deal score isn't going to impact whether we'll work with a, a project that a community would love to see, but it certainly can inform us how aggressive we may be on an incentive package based on that deal score. So it kind of goes back to that quality versus quantity topic that And I
2: I would also add part of the due diligence, and we may not think of it necessarily under due diligence, but the wages. There's oftentimes we receive wages that one may not look right. We know it's not going to be competitive in that area. It's not competitive within the industry. So we also will run um, through our processes and our data analytics individuals what should the wages be for this type of industry, these positions, to make sure that the company is on target with, frankly, how they can recruit employees once they land here in the state.
3: Hmm. I think oftentimes that's more true of international, foreign you know, foreign direct investment projects, just because maybe they just don't have the experience here in the U.S. of knowing what to expect. So that's one way we can help shepherd the project through to completion and and they do appreciate it because they realize oh as to jessica's point we're not going to be able to hire anyone one thing i'll add to what uh both jessica and and brock both said about kind of the due diligence a lot of it also just comes with experience of of us all working projects we'll typically find that the consultant driven projects even before we know who the company is those are typically legitimate not all the time i mean everyone can take on clients that aren't necessarily legitimate but i think typically you'll find that those are more safer than the ones that were i'll reference it you know approached by a singular pr- person who has a good idea and has a speculative type project mm-hmm.
0: so i'll start with with you Jessica for this question but everybody can weigh in on this what do when we when we're responding to these uh, to the leads and the prospects and the opportunities what typically and again I want you to think sort of overall what typically do do local economic developers in Indiana do really well in terms of responding and then I'm going to ask you you know where are the things that we can work on to get better in terms of that response so where are we knocking it out of the park on a general basis and doing really well and let's start there
2: I'll start with we understand that it can be a strain on the local communities or the Lidos um, on our quick turnaround times. So what I would say to that, they've embraced, our local communities have embraced that we can't control that sometimes. And it does turn into, I'll say it again, that team sport. What we can we do to appropriately respond right now with the information we have back to let's say the site consultant or a company. So they, the locals do a really good job at embracing begrudgingly sometimes <laughs> the tight turnarounds and making sure we have a fruitful response back. That's not just one or two sites or turning it down. Uh, Some of our communities also are really good at asking questions. I encourage them to ask questions. If something doesn't look right to them, most likely it doesn't look right to other communities, and let's address that right away. So some of the communities are really good at coming back to us, at asking questions. Something that I would also encourage the locals to do too, if you have a property or a building that you think closely fits an RFI or RFP out there it's not an exact match so for a few acres shy it may be a little bit further past the interstate than we anticipate ask us can we submit on this because we always try to get in those properties as well to the site consultants within reason Mm -hmm. if i'm if we get a request for 500 acres and you send me 10 no (laughs) that's not that's not gonna (laughs) happen but if it's close ask us we have no problems asking the consultants and companies, are you willing to accept this? And I'd say a lot of times they'll agree. They're like, yeah, let's look at it because they don't wanna miss out on that opportunity for their client as well.
0: So now the, the converse of that then, what is it that we, where are the areas where we need to sort of improve our responses? And again, I'm asking you to generalize here, but yeah. we're also looking for opportunities of how can we train or what kind of professional development can IEDA provide to help everybody get better?
1: Yeah, this is – I'll maybe take this one, Team. So this is where we've seen over the last couple of years. I mean, we've had great record-setting years from statewide standpoint for multiple years on end now. And so, you know, what that told us is our kind of traditional – RFP site process how we respond jointly was pretty good and to Jessica's point she highlighted where we're doing really well the key feedback that we were getting over the last couple years were on mega projects things from site readiness and coordination between state and locals down to even just how you show on a site visit itself and so that's where i'd say we've gotten much better and on some of these high profile projects have really partnered well with the local community to improve upon this area and so what i think we can do better is really on these larger projects particularly i think we're doing on the the, the traditional size projects really well but larger projects are combined and joint rfp responses particularly as the down select process happens it's one thing that we've heard big time from site selectors is great we don't care really how it's packaged when it initially comes in but as you down select this should really be packaged together nicely. So that's an area I think that as we now have a better idea of how those should be packaged, we can communicate better out to our Litos and Ritos of, this is what it's gonna look like as your community may get down selected on a bigger project, is you're likely gonna see us wanna do a combined joint type of RFP submission. Also, I think road mapping for projects is an area we all can do better on. Another key thing is we know you don't have the site that's ready to go right now. There's no unicorn out there. However, if you can show me a realistic plan to land acquisition, utilities, all of that, you're in the game. So to Jessica's point, you may have a site that's 10 acres short, has a three, four year timeline for its utility build. On a lot of these bigger projects and even some mid-sized ones, that's totally fine. Submit, Um, but have a roadmap and a plan. Don't just submit and say it could happen. You know, have a plan behind it. And then lastly, what I would say is the site visit showing. Um, So many times I think we see site visits as these technical visits and what we're seeing more and more is quality of place workforce where people are going to live matters which ultimately goes down to how cohesive and coordinated and welcoming as a community and that literally goes down to how you greet somebody at the airport the type of transportation the small little touches and details even down to joint branding on a deck with us on a site visit like those little things are noticed and matter and you know i think because we're moving so fast sometimes we forget so candidly that's where we've looked ourselves and said we can improve and we know that it's not just us because we're submitting alongside of our locals so I think those are some key areas I would identify
3: to that point I can't tell you how many times I've heard from consultant oh this is just a technical visit we don't want us you know don't roll out the red carpet for us and we're not going to talk about incentives or labor or you know workforce or any of that and then the exact opposite happens they are they, uh, the, in, in, invariably the inevitably the question will come up you know oh so tell us about the workforce here you know what what kind of incentives at least on a general level so it's good to be prepared on all that information and and this isn't necessarily something we can all it's something we can all keep in mind um, not necessarily something that needs to be improved, but w- and we rely on the, the Lido's and the Rido's to be the experts on the local community. So keep that in mind. We, I think it's a great partnership and just want to continue that.
0: So as we as we get ready to close, you know, Brock, is there are there any sort of closing comments we need to focus on?
1: I would just say, you know, like we talked about in the BRNE webinar recently with IDA, um, we're doing those one-on-one kind of BR&E, um touch points, and while it's not as formalized through our lead gen and attract- attraction programs. I think what you heard Matt and Jessica say is we're always willing and able to sit down and to listen and align on a lead gen or sales marketing strategy to give best practices on RFPs. So I would say just like folks are taking us up on one-on-ones on on BR&E, take us up on some one-on-ones around what they're doing, lead gen, marketing, RFP, best practices. We're happy to engage and have those.
0: Okay. I appreciate it. Today I've been speaking with Brock Herr, IEDC Senior Vice President for Business Development, Jessica Tower, Vice President of Attractions, and Matt Soltanovitz, uh, Vice President of Domestic Business Expansion. This is the first in our series of IEDC and IEDA podcasts. Stay tuned for more in the series, and thanks to all of you for helping me kick off the series. Thank you, Lee. Thanks, Lee. You've been listening to IEDA In Your Ear, the podcast for members of the Indiana Economic Development Association. All content on this podcast is copyright 2023 by the Indiana Economic Development Association, which retains all rights to this content. And by the way, the theme music was composed and performed by me, Lee Llewellyn. Thanks.